When it comes to natural disasters, it's easy to think, well, that won't happen to us. But that particular brand of optimism doesn't help us become more resilient to disasters. And on December 30th of last year, just one state over, it won't happen to us quickly became, I can't believe it happened to us. Tonight, a life-threatening situation near Boulder, Colorado, where fires are forcing thousands of families to evacuate. Flames reaching their doorsteps, people desperately trying to get to safety. In 2021, the Boulder area had a very wet spring, which led to a lot of wild grass in the foothills. But Colorado was also in a big drought, and when summer and fall saw record lows for precipitation, all of that grass dried out. To make matters worse, there had been no snow in the area by December 30th, and there were high winds coming down from the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains. Seth Ahrens is a research scientist with Western Water Assessment, and he has studied in depth why this particular fire became so severe. Unfortunately, these high winds coincided with somehow a human-caused fire starting very close to the foothills in natural open spaces, and then that fire was quickly transmitted across grassland areas that are kind of intermixed in the Boulder suburbs. And then it really became not a wildfire, but it became a suburban conflagration, just burning from structure to structure. And the wind speeds were so severe that there was absolutely nothing firefighters could do. The entire country watched in terror as a wildfire that felt unimaginable for December ripped through Boulder suburbs, destroying more than a thousand homes and causing losses estimated at over half a billion dollars. The Marshall Fire's severity was the product of compounding natural hazards, drought, warming temperatures, and extreme weather all working together to create one devastating event. These same hazards compound here as well. Imagine this. Utah's drought predisposes our ecosystems to wildfires because the land is so dry. Then, a rogue chain dragging behind a car sparks and ignites nearby brush. A wildfire starts. It's more severe due to the drought conditions, and it quickly burns away the vegetation. The issue can further compound when it eventually rains. With little or no vegetation left to absorb the water, heavy rainfall on the steep, scorched slopes causes water and debris to flood down the mountain and into the valley and onto roads or even homes. You get the picture. The point is, we can't become truly resilient if we think of these natural hazards as separate issues, especially as our climate changes and these events become more common. Instead, we need to think about the intersection between these hazards and take a big picture approach to mitigating risks and becoming resilient when disaster strikes. This is the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. Envision Utah's podcast where we talk about the ways we can make sure Utah is a great place to live now and for decades to come. In the early 2010s, more than 52,000 of you helped us create a vision for Utah in 2050. This podcast is about that vision, what we all want for the future, and what we can do to get there. And this is the final installment in our series on disaster resilience in Utah. We've talked at length about earthquakes. Today, we're talking about the other natural hazards in our state, wildfires, flooding, and drought. Even though these hazards might not be as show-stopping or have as devastating of impacts as the big one, wildfires and floods are much more common. So it's important we ask questions like, how prone is Utah to wildfire and drought? What can we do to increase our resiliency to these events? How do we ensure we're prepared when they happen? To start, though, we need to talk about how Utah's climate is changing. Climate change is, on one level, as simple as it sounds the fact that the climate is changing. What I mean by climate is the sum of daily weather over some time period. Again, Seth Ahrens. A major aspect of Seth's work is researching how climate change is impacting natural hazards like wildfire, drought, and flooding. 
Now, obviously climate change is not unique to Utah, but there are two key factors that set us apart from other places. For one, Utah has a robust record of climate data that dates back as far as 1860. Other states' records typically come online sometime around the early 1900s. Longer, more detailed records mean better analysis of our state's climate patterns. And two, the average temperature in the United States has increased by about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit since 1900. In the state of Utah, the average temperature has increased by 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, within the state of Utah, there's hot spots of warming. And in fact, in eastern Utah, in Grand County, where the city of Moab is, since 1895, temperatures have warmed by 3.9 degrees Fahrenheit. 3.9 degrees is the highest warming in the lower 48 states. With our climate changing quicker than most other places, Utah is an excellent case study for how these warming patterns and other changes will impact our naturally occurring hazards. The climate hazards that are directly related to temperature are those that are most directly impacted by climate change. So the risk of drought is going to increase dramatically in the state of Utah. By mid-century, under a high emission scenario, it's projected that in the Great Basin, on an average summer, 75% of that region will be covered in drought. And by the end of the century, that moves to 100% of the region every summer will be covered in drought conditions. And it's not just in the summer. Spring and fall will also see an increase from 25% drought coverage to 40 or even 60% drought coverage in the Great Basin area. A quick side note, if you haven't listened already, we've talked a lot about drought and the future of water in Utah. You can check out the Your Utah, Your Future podcast's three-part series on water to learn more about the science behind drought and the steps we can take to ensure Utahns have water in the future. But back to climate change, warming temperatures in Utah mean less snowpack, more evaporation, and more widespread drought. And since natural hazards tend to compound... Drought conditions correlate with more wildfires, larger wildfires, and a greater area burned across the western United States. Now, just because there's a drought, that doesn't necessarily mean there will be a wildfire. But drought essentially predisposes our ecosystem to wildfire conditions. That means when there is an ignition, be it lightning or something that humans do, that fire is likely to be larger and more intense. So the incidence of wildfire is projected to increase across the western United States. It's projected that the area burned by wildfire will increase by 100 to 1,000 percent by 2040. So this isn't even the end of the century. In the state of Utah, it's projected that the area burned by wildfire will increase by 175% to 600% by 2040. So how do we not only prepare for these wildfires, but build communities that can be resilient in the aftermath? To start off, it's important to understand that wildfires are natural and happen regardless of human interaction. They're nature's way of clearing out dead debris on the forest floor, which lets nutrients return to the soil and provide a healthy beginning for plants and animals. But this ecological understanding of wildfires is relatively new. In the wake of massive wildfires around the early 1900s, forest service leaders simply argued that any and all fire in the woods was bad because it destroyed standing timber. Over time, new science shed light on the positive impacts of fire in forest ecosystems, and the Forest Service policy did a 180 with a new let it burn policy. If you were anywhere in the West in the late 80s, you saw this approach put to the test. Fire is changing the face of Yellowstone National Park. Areas that were once picture postcards of scenic beauty 
are now charred moonscapes. For visitors, it's a scene that brings strong emotions. But for scientists, the fires here are simply part of the order of things. Nearly 800,000 acres, more than a third of Yellowstone National Park, went up in flames in the summer of 1988. Fire suppression efforts didn't begin until mid-July when it was clear no precipitation was on the horizon, and it wasn't until snow fell in September that the fires finally went out. For many, the destruction of the park felt devastating. But fast forward to today, and the effects of the fire are clear. The burned landscape is dominated by thriving lodgepole pines, and the ecosystem at large has bounced back with little post-management efforts. Since the Yellowstone fire, the Forest Service has had to dial back on the Let It Burn approach and focus a little more on suppression, especially as more and more development spills into what we call the WUI, or the Wildland Urban Interface. Essentially, this is the zone of transition between wilderness and development, and it's where we see the greatest wildfire risks to humans. Picture a community backed up against a forest or a wild open field or a mountainside. The natural beauty and seclusion can be appealing, but it should be pretty easy to understand why these can be risky places to live. So in 2006, Utah authorized cities and counties to adopt the Wildland Urban Interface Code, which regulates construction in the WUI. The idea is that if you live in the WUI, you need to take certain safety measures to protect your home and avoid being the bridge between a wildfire and an urban fire. Jason Curry is the deputy director for the Utah Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands. It's his job to help manage the wildfire risk in the WUI and across the state. He has worked on wildfires for nearly two decades, doing everything from hand crews to engine crews, incident management teams, and investigations. We're the state's responsibility for wildland fire management. So we carry that mandate and we operate on the three pillars of wildfire prevention, preparedness, and fire suppression. Over the time Jason has been with the department, he's seen an uptick in the number of wildfires, especially large-scale fires occurring in Utah. So last year, in the 2021 season, we had 1,131 total wildfires. The 10-year average is 1,093. So we were a little bit above average this last season. And as far as response go, we respond to every single one of those. And when I say we, I'm talking about that interagency effort between the federal agencies, us as the state, and the local fire department. Looking back at the last 30 years, we see increases in land burned and wildfire size as well. From 1984 to 2020, the total acres of land burned by wildfires has increased by 47%, and the average wildfire size has increased from a little over 5,000 acres to 9,000 acres. That's over 14 square miles. So what's causing these fires? Almost half of all of our wildfires statewide are lightning, and there's really not a whole lot we can do about those uh, to prevent them. As far as human-caused fires, the biggest category is debris burning, where people are trying to burn their ditch banks or their fields or maybe just a pile of trimmings, and wind comes up and causes it to escape their control. That's a big one. Campfires that are abandoned or that get out of control, those happens a lot during every wildfire season. And then the category of equipment. So uh, that's probably the top three. We also have an abundance of fuel sources in our forests that can lead to bigger and more devastating wildfires. Over the last 175 years, we've changed our forests, resulting in degraded, fire-prone ecosystems with an abundance of trees and vegetation that serve as fuel. And in certain parts of the state, like the Uinta Mountains, beetles are killing trees, leaving behind dead, dry timber that ignites easier and spreads fire quicker. Utah is lucky, though. We are the only state outside of Alaska with what's known as hotshot fire crews, 220-person crews of the most well-trained professional firefighters in the nation. And we don't have just one, we have two hotshot crews. But they're responsible for responding to fires across the country, not just Utah. And with over 1,000 wildfires to respond to dispersed across the state, it's important that we have a sufficient amount of firefighters and volunteers outside the hotshot crews. 
personnel and recruiting has been an issue for years in wildfire, especially on the volunteer firefighter front. And that's probably where our biggest concern is. Utah has relied on volunteer fire departments for years, but volunteerism in Utah, especially in public safety, is declining. State officials are working on how to address this shortage, but in the meantime, we need to depend on the other two pillars, wildfire prevention and wildfire preparedness. These are everyone's responsibility. First and foremost, know your risk. You can visit utahwildfirerisk.com or ffsl.utah.gov to view interactive fire risk maps. Find your home and assess your own risk. Second, clean up around your home to reduce fuel sources. Burning embers can travel up to a mile in the wind, meaning even if your home is a mile away from a wildfire, if an ember lands in your receptive fuel bed, it can ignite. Easy ways to avoid this happening? Clean your rain gutters and avoid having wood piles next to a deck or next to wood siding on your house. If you live in a particularly fire-prone area, you should also consider updating your home with non-flammable construction materials like a metal roof or lightweight concrete shingles that will still look like wood but are far more fire-resistant. And really every property owner that lives in the wildland urban interface or the WUI should get an assessment from an expert to determine what the risk is and how they can reduce that risk. That's something that can be done free of charge through the division. Finally, if you live in a high-risk area, be prepared for when a wildfire happens, not if a wildfire happens. Think about it from the ready, set, go perspective. Be ready, have your 96-hour kit and list of items you want to grab prepared. Be set, have a plan your entire household is familiar with, and tune into the news to stay up to date on evacuation orders, and go. Be ready to evacuate as quickly as you can. And if you see or start a wildfire, report it. Wildfires and wildfire suppression are expensive. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Western wildfires in 2021 altogether led to more than $10 billion in damage. And that's not accounting for compounding hazards like floods. Similar to wildfires, Utah's natural climate and the ways it's changing puts us at higher risk for floods. We have spring runoff, we have rapid snowmelt, we have our summer fall th thunderstorms, and those storms seem to be getting bigger and bigger and more intense. That's Angela Crowther, Utah State Floodplain Manager with the Utah Department of Emergency Management and the National Flood Insurance Program Manager. Her job is to provide and support education and guidance to communities and state agencies to develop or minimize flood risks in special flood hazard areas. The National Flood Insurance Program, or NFIP, is a federally regulated program run by FEMA. Most of Utah's communities participate in the flood insurance program, which means federally-backed flood insurance is available if those communities adopt certain regulations. But before we can dive into what those regulations look like, let's lay some groundwork. Like, what actually qualifies as a flood? A general and temporary condition of partial or complete inundation of two or more acres of normally dry land area or of two or more properties. So that could be like if one home floods and the street is flooded or if it's two acres or more. Floods are natural and they're likely to occur in a floodplain, otherwise known as a special flood hazard area. Utah has had 12 federally declared disasters, and 10 of those have involved flooding, meaning Utah is a high-risk state when it comes to floods. We are at high risk because of our landscaping throughout the state that not only interacts differently with water and runoff, depending on where you are, but we also have, you know, like 43 state parks and five national parks, which bring people from all over the world that may not understand the risks that we have here in our state. Risks like flash flooding, when extremely heavy rainfall from thunderstorms causes flooding that begins within three to six hours. 
Flash floods are extremely dangerous when you're hiking in a slot canyon or in a drainage basin. But we know Utah is at high risk for these events, which is why we regulate development to ensure flood safety and resiliency. That way, when a flood does happen, we suffer the least amount of damage to life and property, especially in more vulnerable zones. For example, in a zone A with a base flood elevation, which basically shows where that water level is going to reach, or they also call it the 100-year flood event, they should have their lowest floor at or above that base flood elevation. You may have picked up on the term 100-year flood event before, but don't let that name placate you. Many people will say, well, I'm safe because we just got hit by the 100-year storm and we have 99 years left to go. And it's actually a 1% annual chance that a large storm will equal or exceed any given year that base flood elevation. So it's not a 100-year storm event. It can happen multiple times a year. It can happen two days in a row. So it's very important to understand. There's also the 500-year storm where there's a 0.2% annual chance for a large storm. All communities that participate in the National Flood Insurance Program design their developments to the 100-year flood event standard. Critical facilities such as hospitals are held to a higher standard. But resiliency is dependent on proactive choices, which is why both the Department of Emergency Management and FEMA encourage any development to be designed to the 500-year flood event standard or higher. While individuals don't control development, they do do a few things to increase our resiliency and their individual preparedness. Check to see if your community is enrolled in the National Flood Insurance Program. If it's not, reach out to your local leaders to start the process of being enrolled. You can also check your home's flood risk at floodfactor.com or msc.fema.gov for interactive floodplain maps. You should also adopt that same ready-set-go mindset that we talked about with wildfires. Finally, get flood insurance if you don't already have it. Again, in many developed places in Utah, it's not a matter of if a flood will happen, but when. We'd like to reiterate, we're not here to scare anyone. Instead, we want to equip Utahns with the knowledge to have conversations about disaster resilience, to understand our risk for climate change, drought, wildfires, and flooding, and know how those risks compound. It's up to us to learn and prepare so that we can stay resilient to natural disasters now and in the future. Thank you for listening to the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. You can catch all four episodes in our Disaster Resilience series, as well as future episodes on our website, envisionutah.org, or on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Stay tuned for our next series, where we'll be diving into a topic that's on many Utahns' minds, the future of housing. Special thanks to all of the experts who joined us for our series on disaster resilience, but especially in this episode, Seth Ahrens, Jason Curry, and Angela Crowther. This podcast is an Envision Utah production made possible by Envision Utah's generous supporters and the many, many Utahns who have worked with us on disaster resilience issues over more than two decades. This episode was written and produced by Shayla Adams with Nate Brown and me, Jason Brown. Be sure to share this with your friends and family, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and join us next time as we dive into the future of housing.